weights. Maybe you've experienced them in various contexts. Disneyland, Disney World, I guess here. Uh, going to a roller coaster, I remember as a kid, uh, going to King's Dominion in Virginia, and uh, they opened the new, uh, the new roller coaster volcano. And I think we waited in line for like two hours to ride this roller coaster. And now it's like not even a roller coaster. I think they took it down. And uh, so we all had a fair share of long lines. I was really pleased actually when I got my license here that there was virtually no line at the DM, well, we call it DMV in Virginia. Uh, I forget, what do we call it here? Well, wherever you get your license. And so uh, it was very fast. I remember Virginia waiting just forever. And you had to make sure you had everything because if you like didn't, you got to the front and it's like, oh. And then you had to wait in the line all over again. We all know what it's like to wait in long lines. Actually, I was doing a little bit of research. Don't worry, not too much. And uh, and I found that you can hire someone to wait in line for you. Uh, this is like even better than a Disney Fast Pass. Uh, you you pay this person. You know, it's like you can pay someone to shop for you and bring it to your house. But you can, I guess, pay for someone to wait in line. And then when it's time, I guess you go up and I mean. Man, wouldn't you be so frustrated if someone's waiting in line and then someone just walks up and they take places and, oh, yeah. So you can, I guess, do that, and there's a company that will allow you to do that. So, interesting. Waiting in lines. Life is about waiting. But some waits are very long. And that's what we see in our text this morning. We see two older saints who have been waiting their whole lives to see the Messiah. And their waiting pales in comparison to the waiting that Israel has done since Genesis 3.15. They've been waiting for the appearing of the Messiah, the one who has been promised. And in our passage, we see what we might call the waiting remnant, the righteous remnant. We've seen Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see in this passage Joseph and Mary. And we're also introduced to two individuals we have much in common, except maybe their gender. One is a male and the other is a female. And they have been waiting their whole lives to see the Messiah. They are part of this waiting righteous remnant. So you have a, a young couple and really an old couple that are both bearing witness to the identity of the Messiah. Now, Simeon and Anna are not married, but they are nevertheless an older couple bearing witness. And so there's these two themes that are going through our passage this morning. The theme of waiting and expectancy. And the other theme is this theme uh, of this remnant and their witness of the Messiah. So witness and waiting. Witness and waiting. They are going to bear witness to the identity of this child. And you know in the Old Testament... Deuteronomy says, by the evidence of two or three witnesses, every fact will be confirmed. We looked at how the Gospels go beyond that to give us four <coughs> accounts of the life of Jesus. And here, in this early stage of this child and who he is, Luke gives us two witnesses to the Messiah's identity. Simeon and Anna, two figures that appear only here in the scriptures and then walk off the stage. They play their part and then... They exit stage left. And so we see them uh, as this devout, these devout believers waiting for the Messiah. They are representatives from the Old Covenant era, 
believers from the Old Testament as this era comes to a close. And what we see in these people are those who are most receptive to the new era that is coming. Well, in other words, what we see is, while on the whole, most of Israel rejected the Messiah when he came, we see that there was nevertheless a righteous remnant who were expecting the Messiah and had a right expectation from the Old Testament scriptures so that when he came, they received him with joy. They received him with joy. And that is what we see with Simeon and Hannah. <coughs> so as we think about this witness and waiting, we'll look at it in this, uh, we'll look at our passage in uh, in light of these three witnesses that we're going to see. And the third witness is a silent witness of the parents of this child, of Joseph and Mary, and what they do. They witness about this child through their actions. And then we see Simeon and Anna witness with their words. We're going to see that Jesus is the child dedicated to God for you. Jesus is the child declared as salvation for you. And Jesus is the child deserving devotion from you. Let's first consider the witness of the parents that Jesus is the child dedicated to God for you. In verses 21 to 24. And as well, we see this theme in verse 27 and verse 39. We just read the passage. What you see here is the parents... Uh, coming to dedicate this child. Having a will is a good thing to have uh, in the event of your death, untimely uh, death. And, and it's, a, it's also significant and I think important to designate who would raise your children in the event of your death. You would want them to be raised in a godly home, a home that prizes the scriptures, someone that you believe will raise them with a fear of the Lord and seek to instill in them biblical truth. You don't want just anyone raising your kids. And here we see that God himself, God the Father, has designated in his will the parents he wants to raise his son. And that is what we see as he designates Joseph and Mary to raise the Lord Jesus Christ. He has chosen this couple by his will to be raised. Notice the emphasis upon the obedience to the law in this section. He's chosen these parents because they are fastidious to raise this child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We see really three ways uh, that this is seen. Three ceremonies that are carefully observed by Jesus' parents. Actually, four. Not ceremonies, but four evidences of their obedience. Three of them are ceremonies. So we see the obedience of the parents first in the circumcision of Jesus. It says, verse 21, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, stop there. So they follow the prescription of the law of God, which was originally given in Genesis chapter 17, when Abraham had been given the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and established to be the one who would receive these promises and this establishment of this nation of Israel. And they were to circumcise their males on the eighth day to show that they were a part of this covenant promise. <coughs> and so it was that uh, 
the faith, faithful Jews would do this. Right? If they didn't, they were cut off from the people. And so this was a way to identify Jesus with Israel as a Jew, and it was also a way to show that he was uh, one of the, uh, he was in the covenant with Abraham. He would be a part of that, and he would also be obligated to the law of God. <coughs> Second, we see the parents' obedience in the naming of Jesus. The naming of Jesus. It says in verse 21, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Twice they were told, Mary once, Joseph once, they were told to name this child Jesus. They were given the name. They didn't have a choice. They didn't have a book uh, to look through and say, okay, let's choose these books. Uh, a friend of ours growing up, my brother and I's uh, friend down the street, he, uh, his parents, uh, he said he found a book in his house once, and uh, it was a, a, a name book uh, for kids. And he said he was looking through it, and he found his name circled <laughs> in this name book. And uh, how funny. And so that's where they got his name. But, but that's not where Mary and Joseph got the name. They got the name from the angel. And they were obedient. They didn't go, well, we don't really like the name Jesus. We'd rather be Benjamin, you know, or what, Joseph, like his dad, or uh, his earthly dad. And, uh, and so here, that they are very obedient. They're fastidious to obey what they were told. And so they named him Jesus. And what does Jesus mean? Well, it's actually really the same word for Joshua in the Bible. It means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And so this name is a designation for this child about who he will be, what his destiny will be. The main thing that defines Jesus is that he is a savior. He is a deliverer. He has come to deliver people from their sins. I wonder if your sins have been forgiven, if you have been saved from your sins. Here you see even signs that say Jesus saves. Saved from what? Saved for what? Well, we might say you are saved from your sins and the wrath incurred by your sins. But what are you saved for? You are saved for a relationship with God, to enjoy God, to be brought into the adoption of God's family, to enjoy the triune God. And so we are saved from sin for God. And so he is salvation. He is the deliverer. This is why Jesus came, to save his people from their sins. And so they, they're obedient in the naming of this child. They're also obedient, third, in the purification of Mary. They undergo the purification rite after a child is born. And so they travel now from Bethlehem, which where they've been for uh, about 40 days now, and they travel to Jerusalem, a distance of about five or six miles. Up to that point, they, they had been in the town of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And this was to be done according to stipulations in Leviticus chapter 12. I won't fault you if you don't remember what this was. But Leviticus 12, let's go there. It's actually a short chapter, but it describes what is happening in our passage. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 1, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child... And she shall be unclean for seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day of uh, on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. <laughs> if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks. 
as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He shall offer it before Yahweh and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. That's the background to what Luke is describing in this event, the purification of Mary. So after giving birth, she was considered to be richly unclean for seven days, and then there was an additional 33 days for a male child where she could come and offer this offering at the temple. And they're 66 for a girl. You say, why is that? I have no idea. Uh, I don't know. I don't know anyone who does know why that is. It's just that's the difference between the two. Please tell me if you don't. But uh, it's just an interesting uh, difference there. Uh, after these 40 days of purification, though, the woman would come to the temple and bring this offering to the Lord. And so that's what she does. She follows this. And there was... We learned that there was a provision that was made. Uh, if you didn't, if you weren't able to have a lamb, you could offer. It said two birds. So one was to be uh, one was to be a bird or a, 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 a turtle dove or a pigeon. But if you were so poor that you couldn't get a lamb, you could bring two doves or two uh, pigeons uh, or tur two turtle doves or two pigeons, and that's what you could bring. And so it was it was a gracious. Uh, way for the Lord to allow even the poorest in Israel to still be able to offer this uh, sacrifice. What does that tell you then about the family of Mary and Joseph? That they were poor. That they were so poor that they had to substitute. Because it says in the text, verse 22, or excuse me, verse uh, 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so it doesn't even mention uh, the lamb. It simply mentions the birds because it's quoting the latter half of Leviticus 12, indicating to us that they were in that latter category. This also helps us locate some other things. It's likely that the, the Magi have not yet come to visit. Sorry to mess up your manger scenes. Uh, the Magi probably didn't come for maybe two years after Jesus was born, and not in Bethlehem, but in Nazareth. Okay? So not only you know, were they not there in the beginning, but they weren't even in the same city. You know? So, and what do you, why, do, why would we say that they haven't come yet? Well, what are the gifts that they bring? What was one that would maybe help them to purchase something of a little bit more value? Gold. Right? They were given gold as one of the, the presents. It doesn't say there was three wise men or three magi. It just says they had three gifts, so there may have been more. Uh, but we see that one of them was gold, so it's likely that they have not come yet. And Luke doesn't even mention they're coming. That's something Matthew records. It's likely after this event, though, that that takes place. But they're poor. They're poor. And so, even though being poor, they still go through what the law requires. And they also go through with another ceremony that needed to take place. They demonstrate their obedience and their dedication of Jesus as the firstborn. Each Israelite family was to dedicate their firstborn to the Lord if they were not from the tribe of Levi. So let me just read these verses again. Where you see this, verse 22, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, 
they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And so this is a reference to what was given first in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. Remember the Passover? And Israel was going to be passed over. God was going to kill the firstborn in Egypt. And yet, he still had claim over the firstborn in Israel. And so for the Levites, they were gods to serve in the tabernacle and in the temple. For every other male firstborn who wasn't a Levite, they had to give a five-shekel payment to redeem that child back, the firstborn child. So that's where this comes from. And so it doesn't say it in the text of Luke, but it's very likely that Mary and Joseph pay this five-shekel uh, payment to redeem their firstborn son. We see that in uh, that payment in Numbers chapter 18, verses 15 and 16. And so, it is to show that this child is owned by God, he's dedicated to God. Now, this is a big takeaway from this. If, you, if we've lost you, please come back, okay? Uh, looking at Leviticus, Numbers, you know, Exodus, or all these different laws, you know, you can go, oh, man, I skip all that part, you know, uh, fast forward, you know. But here's where we've seen a lot of those pull together. And the big takeaway is these parents are scrupulous, and uh, they are uh, about the stipulations of the law. They're very careful, fastidious in keeping the law of Moses. That is the emphasis of the text. In fact, the, we read that in our verses, how it continues to emphasize what is written in the law of Moses. Verse 23. We also see it in verse 27 later. And he came in the spirit of the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And in verse 39... We read, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So Luke is going out of his way to show how kosher Jesus is, to show that Jesus has been obedient to the law even from his birth. His parents have had great piety, and they've been obedient to the law. I think this tells us two main things, takeaways. First, I think we can say from this, what makes for a good home is not money or education or location. What makes for a good home is a commitment to the scriptures and a home that is careful to obey God and to show the children who God is and the salvation that God has brought. Mary and Joseph were poor, but they were rich towards God. Mary and Joseph were in, lived in Nowhereville, Nazareth, and yet they lived in God's will. Mary Joseph and Jesus did not go to Hebrew University, yet they were students of the scriptures. Parents may not be able to give to their kids uh, a lot of things, but what they can give to them, no matter what, is the scriptures. They can give them a heritage and a, and a, uh, a wealth of truth from the scriptures and a life that is seeking to emulate. Though Though imperfectly, a life that is committed to God and of the scriptures. What habits does your family life teach your children about the value of God and worshiping him? God chose this family to place his son into, knowing that they would prize the scriptures and obedience to God. He would learn the scriptures in this home. He would come to a consciousness of his own messiahship from this home. 
because they taught him the scriptures. Don't you ever think about this? We don't, we don't have a lot of information about when this happened for Jesus. But at some point, the child Jesus came to recognize he was himself the Messiah. Right? You have to uh, keep in mind that he is truly God and truly man. And so he's not in the, in the crib going, man, I just can't wait until I can walk so I can you know, and, and do, do all these things. No, he is going through every experience of life as it comes. And so at some point, as a human, as a man, he comes to the realization that this scripture is about me. Isaiah 53 is about me. Psalm 22 is about me. Genesis 3.15 is about me. And why would he come to that conclusion? Because he's been steeped in the scriptures. And why would he be steeped in the scriptures? Because he was raised, not in a Philistine home, but in an Israelite home that was poor and yet very careful to teach the scriptures. These are the parents Jesus uh, that, that God chose for his parents. He would be taken to the festivals in Jerusalem each year. How providential it is to have a godly home. But maybe you feel guilty. Maybe you feel like you missed opportunities in your home. Man, I just, I wish that had been the case. But here's our second point of encouragement from this, from this section. This is emphasizing that this child has been under the law from his birth. That he has been one obedient. He's been a law keeper even from the moment he was born. Mary and Joseph's testimony of this child then is that he is under the law of God. And we see this in Paul when he says in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This child was born under the law. Why? To fulfill the law at every point. When he gets, comes to be baptized, another rite uh, by John the Baptist in Matthew 3.15, John the Baptist is going, why do you, you don't need to be baptized, and you didn't need to be circumcised either. And yet, he does it. Why? Well, he tells us to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be done. And so, Jesus is coming to fulfill the law. Well, why would he need to fulfill the law? For you. For me. And so his record of perfect obedience is what is credited to sinners as they trust in Christ. And so, have you failed? Of course you failed. All of us have failed. All of us have not been, you know, perfect human beings, perfect parents, perfect children. And yet, that is exactly why we needed this child to be perfect and perfectly obedient to the law. Remember Paul, when he gave his credentials in Philippians chapter 3, and he's like, here's who I was. Here's what I thought. Here's how I, I reckoned myself. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as the law, blameless. And he just lists off all these things. And he's like, he takes great pride that he was circumcised according to the law on the, on the right day. And he was of a good tribe and all these different things. And, and so he's taking... Uh, He's looking at his law-keeping in, in a very superficial way. But Jesus can say that on a far greater scale. Paul came to realize all that was rubbish. It was, it was filth because it was not a righteousness that God would accept. He then came to see the righteousness of Christ. And he be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 says, Christ became for us righteousness. He's become for us righteousness. Our righteousness. 
This child is the one who can circumcise your heart. This child is the one who offers perfect purification. This child is the one who sacrifices himself to atone for your sins. This child is the one who saves from sin. And this child is the one who redeems you to make you his. God forgives us of our sins and furnishes us with righteousness from Christ. Because he's always been obedient to the law. And God ensured it through his providence by putting him in this family. How incredible. Yes, we should seek to have families that are godly, that are going to instill the scriptures and a love for the scriptures. But what we need to be instilling in them is our sinfulness and the righteousness of this one and that righteousness that needs to be ours by faith alone. And so Jesus, we see, is the child dedicated to God for you. He's the child dedicated to God for you. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the child declared as salvation for you. Jesus is the child declared as salvation for you. And here we meet verse 25, Simeon. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. In a court of law, you might begin to establish the credibility of your witness. And so here is Simeon coming along as a witness, and so Luke establishes his credibility. Why is this witness reliable? And so we see his character, we see his piety in verse 25 and, and verse 26. He's a godly witness. We see he's righteous and devout. Calling him righteous may indicate that he is justified in the sense that he's declared positionally to be legally right before God by faith, just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, or it could mean that he practically lives out righteousness. But actually, it's both, because if you're practically living out righteousness, that means you have been declared righteous. You can't have one without the other. So we might say that he is justified and he is being sanctified. It says he's devout. He's committed to the Lord in the pursuit of him in every area of his life. He's described similar to the way Job is described, Zechariah is described, and Cornelius is described. He is also expectant for the Messiah's coming. It says that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. I actually underline that in my Bible, because later it's going to say about Anna, in the end of verse 38, that she and all those who she spoke to were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. A parallel phrase, I underline that. Because those are a focus here on what they're waiting. They're both expectant for this reality. Now, when it says consolation of Israel, we actually sang about that. Israel's <laughs> consolation, right? What does that mean? This comes from a lot of places in the Old Testament, but maybe the most well-known is this, the hinge point in Isaiah. So Isaiah has 1 to 39, and then in chapter 40, it begins the second half, which speaks about Yahweh's deliverance or his salvation for his people. And listen to how that begins. This whole section, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from Yahweh, Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. He goes on to speak about the, the forerunner to the Messiah. But this word comfort, comfort, it's like consolation. The Messiah's coming brings <coughs> consolation. It brings comfort to Israel. And it just encompasses this consolation of Israel. All that Messiah would bring about 
in his coming, what would he accomplish? Well, he would bring about comfort. He would bring comfort to his people. Why? Because he would deliver them from their sins, and eventually he would even reconcile them and then reign on the earth and bring comfort globally. And so this one is going to bring consolation. He is expectant for the Messiah's coming. He is eagerly waiting for him to come. This is a great parallel for us because we're not waiting for the first coming of Messiah. We are waiting for the second coming of Messiah. And yet there's a great parallel here as he's waiting expectantly and Anna is waiting expectantly. But for the first coming, not knowing exactly the day he's going to walk into the temple, and we wait then for the second coming. We are closer than any other generation has been to the Lord's return, right? We are closer now than anyone else to the Lord returning and establishing his reign. We ought to be the most expectant for the Messiah to come. So we see also here, though, as he's, his credentials are being built up, we see not only his piety, his that he's righteous and devout, but also he's expected to decide, but also he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 26 says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then in verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And so it emphasizes three times, verse 25, 26, 27, that the Spirit is upon him, empowering him. He was given a special message, a special revelation from God. This is really unique. He's told, Simeon, you will not die until you see the Messiah face to face. And what a promise. How interesting. Now, it doesn't tell us that Simeon was old. That's certainly the implication from the text, that he is older. And when he says, now I can depart in peace, the likelihood is that he is older, just like Anna is explicitly said to be older. And he's given this promise. I mean, just, if you had that promise, wouldn't that make you so bold? Uh, wouldn't that make you, like, confident to just live full out for the Lord? I'm not going to die until I see the Messiah. All right, let's go for it. Or don't you think it would make you really eager, really attuned to your circumstances? I mean, imagine if God told you you were going to meet your spouse at the Valdosta Mall. What would you do? I mean, you'd probably get a tent and set up and get arrested, you know, and then go back and do it again and again and again because, hey, sir, you can't camp here. It's like, what are you, my spouse here? And you're walking around. What store will she be in? You're there as much as you can. You're just spending time there. You know it's going to be in this temple, and, and you're just there all the time. You're like, wow, what day is it going to be? I can't miss a day. What if that's the day they show up, right? So you would be so uh, eager to see this promise fulfilled. And that, that is Simeon. He has a special promise of spirit empowered, which also tells us that his expectations of the Messiah are accurate because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's righteous. He is a, a perfect example of what every Israelite should have been expecting when Messiah came, but was not expecting. What does it mean that he came in the spirit into the temple? I think it simply means that he, the spirit directed him and prompted him to go into the temple at this particular time on this particular day. And so we have here a reliable witness of the identity of the Messiah. He is spirit-filled, he's righteous, and he has the right expectation of Messiah, waiting for the consolation of Israel. If he's reliable, then what, what does he say about the identity of the Messiah? So we see Simeon's piety, but now we see Simeon's praise in verses 29 to 32. 
Simeon, uh, we see in verse 27, it says, And he came in the spirit of the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and then he begins to, to speak this praise about God. I mean, imagine your first outing with your newborn baby, okay? So your firstborn, your first child, and new parents, you know, they all act differently, but, but your, your first child, and you go out, and you're like, okay, it's a good month, let's go out, let's go to the store, let's go to the grocery store, and you go out, and you're, okay, and, and you go there, and this old man walks up to you and just takes your baby and, and starts saying all these things about it. I mean, yeah, that would be disconcerting to you, you know. Uh, what are you doing? And it just all happens so fast. And he's like, this is the Messiah. He just takes, takes the baby. But, but it gets more interesting than that because of what he begins to say about this child. Look at what he says after seeing the child and taking the baby. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. It's like he's saying, I mean, he takes the baby, this is your first outing, takes the baby and goes, oh God, you can kill me now. <laughs> it's like, okay, please hand the baby back to us now. <laughs> Step away from the child. I mean, this is just such an incredible sight that, that we're getting to witness here. But the point is that the purpose of this man's life has been accomplished. It's like he's been on watch, waiting, 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 and now he's seen, and now he can go off of his watch. He can now die in peace. Why can he die in peace? Well, because it says, verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. <clears throat> he only sees the beginning of what this child is going to be, but that's all he needs to see. Because God has fulfilled the promise to bring him he will fill his promise to do everything else that this child will do. All of his life, his death, his resurrection. That's all he needed to see. He has seen God's salvation. Now, he's quoting from all over the place in Isaiah. Just so many different texts, saturated with scripture and messianic expectation. Here's one of them in Isaiah 49, verse 6. God says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? Speaking about the Messiah, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So God is saying, you're my servant, Messiah, but it's too small for you just to redeem Israel, to just save Israel, to just bring back Israel and, and Judah. I will make you a, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. It's not just going to be for Israel. It's going to go beyond Israel to the Gentiles as well. That was already the Old Testament expectation. And Simeon just repeats that. It's like Simon says, right? God said it, we repeat it. God said it, we repeat it. When we study the Bible, we don't just make stuff up, right? Especially when we're studying, you know, the Old Testament. God says it, we repeat it. We say it. That's what the New Testament writers do. God said it, they repeat it. And they, they maybe give further understanding of that, but they're not making up new things. They are keeping it in concert with what was said before. And so we, what, what's, what's amazing here, though, is in Isaiah, it is God who says that this child is his salvation. Like, this is my salvation. The salvation I'm going to bring. What is he, who is he talking about? He's talking about the child. Not something abstract. 
but something very definite. The child is salvation. And that is what Simeon is referring to here. I have seen your salvation, God. God, in the Old Testament, you said it was my salvation. But I'm saying I've seen your salvation, God, because he's holding the child. He's holding the baby. He's looking at salvation. Jesus saves. That's his name. Yahweh saves. One writer said this. He will... He not only will bring salvation, but he himself can rightly be called salvation. He will not only bring consolation to Israel, but he himself is the consoler. For Simeon, salvation is something he can hold in his arms, and he's doing so. What an experience to have all that expectation and to hold this child. John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel. Right? The Gospel is not something you get... Uh, God is giving you something other than him. The gospel is that God gives you himself. And he removes every obstacle in the way, your sin and the judgment you deserve, in order that you might have him. You might enjoy him. And that is what Simeon realizes. This child is salvation. It's not that Jesus is a means to another end. He is the end. And he's saying, this is salvation. He is the one. If you have Christ, you have salvation. John Calvin we are not uh, supposed to seek in Christ something else than Christ himself. We seek him. We want him. And he is a salvation for the whole world, Gentiles and Jews. Restoration for Jacob and revelation to the Gentiles by this servant. Now, what's amazing, this is rich in application, in that what he says here, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Can you say, now I can depart in peace? Can you say that from the heart? Can, can you really say, I can die right now in peace? How could you possibly say that? I can die in peace right now. The only way you can say that is if you've seen God's salvation through the eyes of faith. Not, not, you, you don't get the opportunity, nor do I, to see the Lord Jesus physically. We see him through the scriptures by faith. We see him on the pages of scripture and we recognize who he is. And we recognize he is our only hope for peace with God. That is the way you can depart in peace. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't desire to live longer to do other things, but could you depart in peace right now because you have seen the salvation that God has provided and he is your salvation. Now, a word for unbelievers who, who you, you are uncertain or you know you don't know Christ, this is a great reason to trust in Christ, that he is the way to peace with God. He is salvation. He's the way for you to be able to say, God, whenever you say my time is up. I can believe in peace. I can depart in peace today because my sins are forgiven and I'm right with you. There's nothing more important than that. To be able to say, I know my sins are forgiven. And that's not something you want to wait for to have right before God. It's something you want now to be able to say, I can depart in peace. Whether it's now or in 50 years or 20 years or 10 years or 5, whatever it is, God, I can depart in peace because I've seen more salvation. Bill Riken says, anyone who sees Jesus with the eyes of faith is prepared to die. For the believer, you 
I'd say, yes, I, I believe I'm ready to die uh, at peace because I know Christ. But is your life such that saying a different message enough, that you're saying, yes, but I just want to get this done, or I just want to have this much money, or I just want to do these things, and, and, and then God can take me, because I, it, it, until I have those things, those are the things that will give me peace. Is your life preaching a message that says, I can't have peace until I get these things? Or is it saying, I'm happy to get those things, I, I want to be ambitious for God's glory, and I want to serve God, and I want to live and see my, my kids, my grandkids, I, I want to be uh, an example like Simeon and Anna were, but God, whenever you take me, it's fine. Is our, is our life saying that truly Jesus is our peace such that we could die at any moment? We don't want to die, but we could die at peace if he would call our number today. Here we see, as one person said, both the simplicity and the scope of salvation. It doesn't get more simple than this. What is salvation about? It's about getting God. Jesus is salvation. He is what we want. And we have him by faith. And the scope is for all. It wasn't just for Israel. It's for anyone. Anyone who would have him can die in peace. This is the praise of singing. May it be our praise as well. We see then a kind of shift. Because look at verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. I mean, it's like everyone knows more about their child than they do. Every time they meet someone new, they're telling them all these great things about their child. And they're going, okay, great. Like, and of course, they had a lot of knowledge of the scriptures as well. But they're getting these new prophecies and all these things said about him. And so they're just marveling. They're amazed at all this being told them. And then Simeon has something else to say. Not only Simeon's piety, his praise, but now his prophecy. And this will be difficult for Mary to hear. There's an edge in all this excitement. And he prepares her for that. Simeon reveals four things about Jesus' ministry. Jesus brings separation. Jesus brings scorn. Jesus brings sadness. And Jesus brings secrets to light. Notice that he brings separation. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary... His mother. Likely, because we don't, we're never told that when Joseph dies, but it's likely he dies before Jesus' public ministry. And so he speaks directly to Mary. Behold, this child is appointed, destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Here's what he has been appointed for. The fall and rising of many. Fall and rising refers to those who reject and who receive Jesus. For some, he's appointed as the one whom they will fall over. You remember this, uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and, and some will stumble over him. This is what Isaiah 8 said, as we saw in our study of 1 Peter, that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. <coughs> and, and yet some, he will be their rising. And likely this is a reference to resurrection, resurrection life, eternal life, and, and a resurrected life in the future. He will be the cause of their <coughs> resurrection. He will be one who separates. Some, because of him, will stumble. Some will be saved by this one. So Jesus brings separation. Jesus also brings scorn. It says, For the fallen rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. For a sign that is opposed. The idea of opposed is to be refused, to be spoken against. 
Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What did he mean by that? He meant, because he goes on to say, that he will divide families. He's going to be the cause of division in families because some in the family will receive him and some will reject him. And that difference will cause conflict in the family. And so he's going to separate out and there's going to be some who scorn him and scorn his people. J.C. Rao called this a prophecy which is being daily fulfilled as people speak against Christ. He said, men who agreed in nothing else have agreed in hating Christ. We see a great example of this not too far in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 4, in his hometown, as he goes to preach in his public ministry, in chapter 4, verse 28, it says this. He's in Nazareth, his hometown, begins to preach. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I mean, he was, he was loved or he was hated. This is what Luke will say in chapter, or Jesus will say in Luke chapter 20, verse 17 and 18. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Have you ever noticed that if you are maybe at work or uh, among some who are not believers, and they begin to uh, talk about things that they've done over the weekend or through the week, and they're kind of comfortable talking about doing uh, sinful things. And they're just kind of, oh, yeah, I did this. And, oh, man, I did that. And they just kind of want to beat each other and one-up each other on, you know, what they did. And, uh, I, you know, and they just glory in their shame and their sin. And then someone goes, you know, whoa, what did you do? It's like, oh, I went to, I went to church. I went to Sunday school. And then, and then I went to the main service. And we, and we learned that, uh, you know, oh, you know, for the guys, I went to the men's study. And, you know, yeah, we studied Exodus. And, and there's like, just shuts the conversation down. It's like, what? Down? It's like, and, uh, and, and this is the reaction, though, that, that, that happens with Christ. He gets scorned. People use his name as a curse word, a filler. And so here's what Simeon is saying. Mary, know that not only is he the consolation of Israel, but he'll bring separation, he'll, be, he'll bring scorn, but he's also going to bring sadness to you. It says, in verse 35, and a sword will pierce through her own soul. This is a word for, for a sword that is like a, a massive sword, a broad sword. It's going to pierce your heart. It's a metaphor to speak about the emotional distress that she will experience. She will stand there at the cross in the culmination of her distress, seeing her son scorned, spit upon, mocked, having been beaten, disfigured to the point of not being able to recognize her son. And this will bring great pain to her. He's preparing her for this. And then finally, Jesus brings secrets to light. This is so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He will bring to light where someone really is. This child reveals people's hearts. Your true stance before God is revealed when you deal with Christ. And you can, someone can be generally nice and kind, and you're like, wow, they're a great neighbor and all these things. But press the person about what they think about the true person of Christ, and there's a dividing line. There is a revelation of their heart 
before God. It is the ultimate litmus test of where a person is. And you press them in. And I fear that some people have never truly encountered the biblical Christ. They have a vision of him in their minds that is not truly biblical. And so they're just like, well, take it or leave it. No big deal. They've never been encountered the true Christ of the scriptures to make them make this dividing line to where they say, I reject that. I will not have him. But how a person responds to Christ reveals the true nature of their hearts and their hearts Affections. He's either a savior of life to life or a savior of death to death. And so, are we for him or are we against him? Do you love him or do you neglect him? Is this a doctrine of stumbling for you or is this something that is life from the dead? Here is who you will be. How will you respond to him? How have you responded to him? Well, we see that Jesus is the child dedicated to God for you. Jesus is the child declared as salvation for you. And then finally, Jesus is the child deserving devotion from you. He's the child deserving devotion from you. And here we meet Hannah, or Hannah, which means grace. Verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Once again, we are given her credentials, her reliability, and then her response to the Messiah. We see her reliability first, and she's given a just a number of descriptions here for us. She's given a description of being a prophetess. She's empowered by the Spirit. This is a very rare role uh, with prophets. Uh, no woman served as a priest, but there were prophetesses. Uh, Miriam, uh, Deborah, Huldah, Anna here, and then the daughters of Philip in Acts 21. Prophecy is not a gift that is being continued to be given. It was a foundational gift for the establishment of the church. But here she is given this ministry of a prophetess. She's also Phanuel's daughter. And this is an interesting connection that uh, this, this idea of Phanuel, it's, it's, a, it's another connection back to when Jacob wrestled with God. And in that experience, he got a vision of God and he names the place. Peniel, and it's, a, it's, it's really the same root here, it's the same, same word, in verse 30 of chapter 32, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Peniel means face, the face of God, and so here is this great experience Jacob has of seeing God, like the pre-incarnate Christ, and, and so she is Peniel's daughter, now of course, he has this name that indicates going back to that. But isn't it interesting that she sees the face of God in this child, in the temple. She sees the face of God, and she's the daughter of Phanuel. Isn't that interesting? And so she's also the tribe of Asher. This is a, a tribe in the north. Very little said about this tribe. They were thought to be, sometimes you hear about the lost tribes of Israel, and 
it's the northern tribes that were taken into captivity in 722 BC. And it's like, well, we just came in. Well, apparently, Luke was able to identify her as a tribe of Asher. And so she is of this uh, tribe that was taken into captivity in the north, but has survived. And she is one who has suffered. She's a widow. A widow indeed, as Paul would say. And we see her age. She's a little bit uncertain about. She could be over 100 or she could be in her 80s based on how this uh, text is, is phrased. Uh, it doesn't really matter. The point is that she's old, and she's been waiting, and has been serving God. And you see here her devotion. And here's the, here's the big note to take away from her, her consistency. Notice the text, how consistent she was. She did not depart from the temple. She was consistently there. She was consistently at the temple. She was worshiping, which indicates this is constant in her life. She was fasting, praying, ongoing activities. Night and day, another way to speak of consistency. She is committed, devoted to God. She is an example of serving God well into old age. And we need saints like this. I mean, I've heard people talk about planting churches, and they want to, we want a young church. You know, this isn't your grandma's church. Like, I don't want to go to that church. You know, I want Titus 2 ministry, where the older saints are teaching the younger saints. Young people, we don't know anything, right? We need the older people to tell us what we don't know. And so, and, and sometimes older saints are hesitant to, to speak into the lives of younger saints. Oh, I don't know if they want to. You have the right, by your age, to just go ahead and say it. Just interject. You don't have to be asked. Just tell us what you think. Tell us the experiences you've had through faith, through your family. You know, how, you, how you've grown, what God has taught you as you've matured. Some are much older in their faith than, than their age would show. And they have they've grown tremendously through various things in their lives. But here we have this two older saints, Simeon and Anna, who are, who are held up as these great models in Israel of faithfulness, consistency, devotion to God, and an example of expectant waiting for the Messiah. Our church is not going to grow apart from godly saints who can minister to younger saints. Who could be a model, an example. I'm so thankful for just the broad spectrum that our church is and how the Lord is using that to grow and it, people getting into each other's lives and ministering to each other and helping one another. I mean, she is a model. Anna is, in so many ways, of enduring hardship and the loss of a spouse. She's a model of perseverance and faith over the long haul. She's a model of continual service. She's a model of love for the worship of God and the people of God. She's a model of giving thanks instead of complaining. She's a model of self-denial. She's a model of prayer. She's a model of encouragement and witness for Christ. Yes, the, your ministry may change and service may change for God as, as you grow older, but it doesn't end. You may retire from your vocation, but we never retire from service to God. We're always useful to God, even if it's praying to God. She is devoted to prayer. I heard one pastor say that older people are like grapes. And there's two kinds. One is like a fine wine, and the other is like a shriveled raisin. <laughs> One is kind of grumpy and, you know, and yet here she's not grumpy and complaining. Oh, my life. She is giving thanks. She's praising God. You want to be around her. She's a fine wine. And then notice her response here. She's this great example. Let me just say one more thing. You know, the father has been eternally satisfied with his son. He's never exhausted himself of delight in the son. But we also need earthly examples of people who for decade after decade after decade have just walked with Christ and have just lived for Christ and have said, he's enough. 
He satisfies me still. I've read the Bible a hundred times, and I love it. I love it more than I love it the first time I read it. It is that deep, it is that good, and he's that worthy of your devotion. We need those examples to say, man, if he can satisfy someone like that for their whole life, he's worthy as well of my devotion. Here's her response in verse 38. He said, she says, coming up at that very hour, God just directs her. She's like, well, what's going on here? And Mary's like, well, I've heard, you know, Simeon, he's got the baby. And she walks up, oh, what's going on? She walks up that very hour. She began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, or speak of him, of the Messiah, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And she just starts witnessing. She's just like, hey, I want to tell you about this child. Let's rejoice that God has sent him. And she is just passionate to tell others about him. What is devotion to Christ in your life look like? He is worth it. May this be the very marrow of our fellowship to speak much of the Lord Jesus, to marvel together at our sights of him in the scriptures. This child is worthy of your devotion. He's worthy of your consistent devotion over a lifetime. Polycarp, early Christian martyr, when he was threatened at the stake of being burned, if he didn't recount or pronounce his faith, here's what he said famously. He said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? What an example of a life lived. Knowing Christ is totally worth it. What are you going to take from me? Holly Kirk could say, I can die in peace. Take my life. I'm right with God. My sins are forgiven. Go ahead and take me. He's worth it. Here we see waiting and witnessing. The saints have waited, and now they witness to the, to the glory of Christ. He is the one who's been dedicated to God for you. He's obeyed the law perfectly so that you can have a right stand with God. He is the one declared as salvation. He's the only hope. He's the one that you need to be able to die in peace. And he is the one who's worthy of all your devotion, worthy of a life spent serving him, knowing him, growing in him, and talking to him about others. May that be what draws us in to know him more. Even today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for models in our lives, for people who have been devoted to him, who have stirred our affections for him through their life, through their consistency. We thank you for the witness of the scriptures, for the expectation in the Old Testament. Lord, would you stir us up the greater affection for Christ and devotion to him. Thank you for a righteous standing in him that we could not have apart from him. We pray that you would make our fellowship a mature fellowship. You would make us to, to grow through the energy of the youth and the experience of the older saints and that you would grant us to mutually serve and benefit one another as Titus 2 speaks of older and younger grow us in maturity and strength that we might grow into fine wines Lord, to be enjoyed and to have rich wisdom from you and your word thank you Lord for this fellowship and what you're doing here continue to grow us and mature us as you would please in Jesus name Amen. 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 Amen.